Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This evening we are launching a new series over the next five to six weeks, and we are focusing our attention on the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular what is known as the Beatitudes. And the plan over the next few weeks, it will come up on the screen, over the next few weeks is that we will do a different Beatitude in the morning and the evening. It will not necessarily be taken in biblical order, and we're going to try and come at it from a different perspective or a different way so that we sort of provoke some thought. Maybe many of you have heard the Beatitudes, have read the Beatitudes, just grown up in church, you'll know them as they were back to front. Blessed are those who do this, blessed are those who do that. So we're going to um, come at them in a different way so that we have a, a great season in the Word looking at these series and that we'll get something fresh out of it for each and every one of us. So we're better to start than reading the Beatitudes together. And so if you have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen, but it's Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read the first 12 verses. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, at the start of this new season, as we come and look at the Beatitudes, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us afresh. That, Lord, the many times that we have read them or heard them before them, that this time, Lord, you would speak something of a word in season into our hearts and into our spirits. Father, may you so stir things up that we would want to go back and see what you said 2,000 years ago and see the relevance for us today. Holy Spirit, we welcome. We welcome you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. My aim this evening is to paint a backdrop for the whole passage and to provide us a context in which to place the next four to five weeks of teaching so that we get some idea of what was happening at that time historically, spiritually, what was happening in the time of Jesus, where does it fit into some of the plans, so that when we hear each beatitude, that we, oh, that's in the context of this or that, so that we have some background or backdrop in which to place what we hear. And probably the the best place to start is actually with the word beatitude itself. A lot of us will be familiar with, oh, this is the beatitudes, or this is the passage. And there's actually a lot of confusion around the word beatitude. And we have to say that the the word beatitude is not a biblical word. Actually, you will not find it in the, the original Greek. It's something that has metamorphosed over a number of years. 
The word beatitude actually comes from the, the Latin Bible and was translated, when the Latin Bible was translated, from the original Greek. And because the original Greek word is a complex, complicated, packed word, the, the best word that they could come up with, with, with was what we call the beatitude. But in reality, it only does it in part. It does not do it in whole. However, more confusion came when the English Bible was translated from the Latin Bible. And you can see all the complications here. And there's no one's at fault. It's just the, the limitation of language and what goes on. But the English language did not really have a word actually to fully comprehend the word beatitude, let alone the original Greek. So the something that we have got today is something around the word blessed. No one's fault, but it is a word that is not fully sum up the original Greek word. And in essence, when we talked about someone's blessed, it's becoming to our vernacular that they are blessed, they are happy. There's, there's lots of different understandings or misunderstandings about it. Actually, the word is quite wrong if we t take it as just blessed or happy, and it has actually led to some real poor theology and poor teaching around this matter. The Bible is not simply saying, happy are you if you do these things. Because in a sense, it's really crazy to think, isn't it? Happy are you if you mourn. Happy are you if you are persecuted. None of us want to be persecuted, and none of us really want to mourn, do we? So what is the Bible really saying? And we will come back to this later on. But that sets the scene for this whole passage. Firstly and foremostly, the Beatitudes must be read against the background of Jesus' time. There is no point in us not knowing what was happening in the 21st century. We mustn't see them through Christian eyes. We mustn't see them through the eyes of a 21st century biblical scholar. We need to see the lens as they were then 2,000 years ago. And it was a time of incredible difficulty. It was a time of incredible challenge. And these challenging words come these very Christian but challenging words come to people who are living in an extremely different season. To begin with, the, the rulers of the day, the Roman government, they were very, very strong. They were very, very strict. You either agreed with them or probably you lost your life. There was one way. It was the Roman way. There was no other way. <laughs> you, if there was any rebellion, it was stamped upon. You were executed. If there was any threat to Rome, you were done away with. <clears throat> and the Caesar was all-powerful. Whatever happened, whatever he wa wanted, whether he was crazy or intelligent, it was his way and no other way. It was a very difficult time in which to live in. The, the average citizen, the life was incredibly cheap. You know, tw the sex trafficking wasn't invented in the late, 19, uh, late 20th century and the early 21st century. At the heart of the Roman government was prostitution and trafficking, an incredible debauched season of our history. It was a difficult time. Added to this, the average person who actually had a job didn't have much wealth. Something in the region of 35 to 40 percent 
of any salary that was earned was taxed. You know, I think we probably always think, well, I guess we get taxed way too much today. But in that time, it was anything from 35 to 40% of tax, even if you had a job. And I use the word advisably, advisably, if you were lucky enough to have a job. For every person that was in, in the first century Palestine that had a job, there were three slaves. Three out of every four person wasn't a free man. They worked for their master. They worked sometimes for good masters or for cruel masters, and they had an incredibly difficult time. Added to this, racial issues, racial prejudice was hugely prevalent and like a cancer. It ate away at society. Jesus talks a bit about it when he talks about the, the, the different, uh, about the Samaria and different things. But if you, first of all, weren't a Roman, then you were nobody. And racism was incredibly prevalent and incredibly powerful. And it's into this context that Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are those who are, are, are seek after righteousness, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who are merciful. Jesus is speaking an incredibly powerful message into an absolutely hellish world. The religious scene, as ever. When isn't the religious scene uh, far from being complicated and confused? And every religious and every uh, religious sect had their own way of coping with living in first century Palestine. The zealots, they were the I don't know, they were the nationalists, they were the terrorists of the day. They thought that everything would only be solved by the overthrowing of the Romans, that they would fight. They wanted Jesus when he came to be, as it were, a warrior, a soldier who would rise up with an army and get rid of the powers of the day. Their answer was very clearly a military rebellion. You had the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they believed that the only way that you could, uh, could survive is to comply with whatever the government of the day wanted. You just lived your life to comply, irrespective of what you felt was your faith, irrespective really of what the Old Testament was saying. You, you complied with what was happening. And the good old Pharisees, well, perhaps I shouldn't use that phrase, good old Pharisees, but you know, as long as you did went through the motions, as long as you were fulfilling the ritual of the day, you were fine and you would be able to survive. And we hear the words of Jesus, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger for thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers. I believe unless we see how incredibly countercultural Jesus' message truly was, we actually lose some of the enormity of what was being said. However, not only was the, the religious scene and the political scene, the philosophical scene was, in, it was completely anti what Jesus was about to say. You know, the, the prevailing, overarching thought of the day was still absolutely dominated by Plato and, and, and Greek philosophy. And if you ever read some of uh, his writings, it can be really hard in some places, but you know that when Plato wrote, he wrote absolutely against some of the affections like meekness and empathizing with people and merciful. He saw those as weaknesses and that they should not have any part in any man's character or culture. He had no time for them and he saw them as weaknesses. The contrast of the message of Jesus in the Beatitudes and in broader, the Sermon on the Mount, was absolutely incredible. 
It really was a radical, moral, spiritual revolution that has never been heard like before or perhaps since. In order to get a picture of what was happening with Jesus was that it was probably at the start of his second year of ministry, and he was probably at the height of his popularity. It's not absolutely possible to, to pinpoint it, but we believe it's the start of the second year, and he is incredibly popular. He had already had two altercations with the Pharisees, probably had lots of minor ones, but he had had two altercations, as it were, with the Pharisees of the day. And we find him, and the Bible says that he goes up a mountain, which in reality is not much more than a hill. You know what I mean? It would, not, it would be easier to climb this, this hill than it would be the Hakramadas. It was not a big hill in any sense at all. I don't know why they actually called it a mountain. There may be religious significance in a few moments. But there he went onto the side, the northeast side of the Galilee. It was a natural amphitheater, the, the beautiful, incredible countryside. The Sea of Galilee is one of the most blue seas you will ever see. And the, and the setting of this scene is absolutely incredible. And scholars can't pinpoint exactly how many people were there, but it could have been anything from 10 to 15,000 people who had come to hear him speak. And it was such an impressive scene that it is also quite symbolic of what Jesus was doing in his life and in his ministry. Here he is. He's on the side of this, this hill, let's call it the mountain because that's what the Bible calls it. And all around him are places of incredible significance. To his left, depending on where you would cross it, anything from 20 to 50 kilometers away would have been the River Jordan where Jesus would have, was baptized, where he heard those words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, where Jesus launched his ministry. Down below him and all around him was the Sea of Galilee where he had done some incredible miracles where people had seen that truly he was the Son of God. And here he was in this environment about to speak to his people. Not too far down the road, I'm going to get my geography here, to the west was Nazareth where Jesus had been rejected. You know, also it says in the New Testament, Jesus says, woe to three different places. And he said that during in his ministry. And if you go to, that, go to Israel today, those three cities have never been rebuilt and they are absolutely in ruins today. And Jesus is setting the scene. Away to the, I've got it in my notes, so I better get this right in case there's any ge geographical experts here. To his, to his right, to, his south, to the southwest, there would have been the Mount of Megiddo and the Valley of Megiddo, which today we know as Armageddon. It was in the original Megiddo. It was, it's the place where Revelation and biblical scholars believe in Bible prophecy that the, the war to end all wars will, will, will happen when the nations of the, of the world come against Israel. And that was not too far away. It was an easy drive. And the scene was being set for Jesus to say some of his most profound words. And the geographical setting was absolutely incredible. So this lowly, Galilean's carpenter climbed this hill and the scene was being set in two ways. One that would have been instantly known to everybody around him. They would have got it set straight away. And the second one is not quite so obvious. But when looking back on his words, when looking back on his ministry, when looking back on his life, the penny would have dropped. 
Sorry, I don't know. Do you have a cent that drops or do you have a penny that drops? Forgive me. But the penny would have dropped that that is what he is talking about in that situation. Two things that if we don't see at the outset, and it's actually, when you read the Beatitudes, you, you get to this first verse and you just go over it very quickly and then you get into the main meat of the teaching. But actually, the first verse of Matthew 5 is as important as anything else especially for the setting of this scene. And it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. By sitting to teach, Jesus was doing what was the custom of a Jewish rabbi. Not because he was tired, not because he wanted to have a rest, not because he wanted to speak for a long time, but he was declaring himself, and which they had already said, that he was functioning in their midst like a rabbi. By sitting down, people in the Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic tradition, would have known that scripture had been read, and Jesus or anybody, a rabbi, would have read the scriptures standing up, and they would have come to a conclusion. He would have closed the scriptures, and then he would have sat down. The reason that he would have sat down is this, because as soon as the rabbi sat down, the, the listener would know that the words of the Old Testament or the words of Jewish tradition were no longer being read or no longer being espoused. What was happening was the rabbi was telling you his own thoughts. So as soon as he sat down, everybody knew, hey, these words now are the words of Jesus. And Jesus, by sitting down, by fulfilling what was known so well in their customs, was saying this, guys, you need to listen to me. What I'm about to say is so important. What I'm about to say is so crucial. We don't read that Matthew says, or Matthew doesn't say that he read and then he sat down, but such was the custom of the day that it's pretty, pretty safe to assume that he would have read something from the Old Testament and then he would have sat down. But we do know that Jesus is saying, you need to listen to me. One of the things that we do need to be careful is that we don't in in the 21st century, just see them as a priest or see rabbis as a, as a minister of the gospel. L later on in history, the rabbi did perform some services. But at this time, a rabbi who was an, um, an expert in the Old Testament, who was an expert in the Jewish law, that was all he did was to teach in the synagogue and in the temple. And Jesus is saying, you need to listen to me. You need to hear what I'm saying. They knew something was important was coming. <clears throat> the second statement being made here by Rabbi Jesus, as N.T. Wright puts it, puts it like this. Moses went up a mountain to receive the law, but here was Jesus ascending a mountain with the purpose and intent of explaining the law and revealing how we are to live as the people of his kingdom. The similarities between the receiving of the law and the Ten Commandments and Jesus speaking here on the, uh, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount are not coincidence. They're not just, oh, that's a nice sim similarity. Oh, that's not a nice picture. These were meant to be. These two images were highly symbolic. What, was, what had been heard on Sinai was now in some ways being fully explained like never before and never since. You know, we could spend weeks and weeks and months 
talking about the similarities between the Old Testament Decalogue and the New Testament Sermon on the Mount. Many sermons have been written about it. Books have been written about it. But we're here to say, say, the only thing that we're here to say is this, that Jesus was saying, you've had the... You've had the Ten Commandments. I am now here to explain them to you. We're not doing away with them. I want you to grasp them. I want you to see them. I want you to live them in a new way. I think it's Matthew 5, 17 says that Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. And so Jesus standing or sitting on this mountain is about to tell people what they had known for many, many centuries, but unravel it and teach it in an incredibly new way. Jesus was saying to the people, and he would say to us today, that the Ten Commandments are not simply a list to be followed, not simply, maybe you don't have them these days, but I remember growing up, if you, most Christian houses you went into, somebody always had a plaque on the wall with the Ten Commandments. You know what I mean? And the other one was, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, you mean, depending on which house you went into. But a lot of families had the Ten Commandments. And that was really great. I'm, I'm not mocking that or saying that. But what Jesus is saying, these have an incredible influence and implication for us today. Because although they are a list of do's and don'ts and in many ways respect, they have an impact on our thoughts because thoughts lead to actions, and if we don't get our thoughts right, our actions will quickly follow. What is clear about Jesus' teaching is the intensity he gave to loving God. He brought forward the teaching of the Old Testament to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength from, from Deuteronomy. And then he says, and he takes that and he mixes them together and says, we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So here we have probably people not instantly realizing the Old Testament, Sinai, Jesus fulfilling the law and the Sermon on the Mount. And here we are about to have one of the most incredible discourses on how we are to live that we will ever, ever hear. There is not a more clear declaration in Scripture or anywhere of how we are called to live and follow Jesus. People who claim to follow Jesus are not only people who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, but we must be people who have transformed lives. The Bible says, by our fruit we will be known. You know, Jesus has very strong words to say to people who simply follow him or worship him and fail to obey his commandments. If you love me, you will do these things. And Jesus is saying, this is what the law says. This is how I'm helping you to interpret it. You just can't have one without the other. The two go together. He is not asking us just to tinker with our, with our thought pattern. He's not simply asking us to tinker with a few bad habits or a bit of gossip or a bit of bad language or a bit of looking at things that we shouldn't do. Jesus is asking us to radically transform our lives, our entire lives, and to change our worldview so that we follow what Jesus has said to us. You know, the Beatitudes and then the Sermon on the Mount are the most incredible passage of teaching probably that we will come across. This is how we are supposed to live out the law. So it is with the Beatitudes. 
If the law in the Old Testament tells us how to, in, in a sense, have a process of approaching God with the sacrifices and the lambs and the goat and the blood and the different things, the Old Testament lays out a, pro, a process of how we come to God, and ultimately we know that it is through Jesus on the cross and his sacrifice. The New Testament <clears throat> is telling us, and this makes us really, really nervous as Christians, because we all know about grace, and we're all comfortable with grace, and we know that we can't earn our salvation. But this passage makes us a little bit nervous because it says, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then you will earn this. If you are meek, this will happen. If you are a peacemaker, this will happen. And it actually makes us a little bit nervous because we know it's all of grace. You know, the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say the poor in spirit are saved. Absolutely not. But it says, if you are poor in spirit, then you will be blessed. It's that real conundrum, that real different, difficult tension that we have as Christians. We know that we can't earn salvation, but we know that if we do certain things, God will, will bless us. And it's those things that we have to hold in tension. You know, the reason I, I say that is because just getting saved doesn't automatically change your life. Wouldn't that be easy? And man, I tell you, I wish that getting saved made me perfect. I can guarantee you it makes me far from perfect. But you know, but the Bible is saying, okay, you get saved and that's the entrance to a radically changed life and this is how you do it. And these are the attributes and these are the qualities that I'm looking for you to develop over your lifetime. And you know that the Beatitudes are not, well, I'm going to work on this one, I'll forget about that one, I'll pick this one, I'll pick the easy one, I'll forget about the persecution. They are the composite for a Christian life. It's not a smorgasbord or a pick, a pick and mix. They are a complete, and they should be areas that we are all working on at all times in our life. Another thing that the, the, the the Beatitudes does in an incredible way, is it gives us that insight into the present and future nature of the kingdom where we see elsewhere in Scripture. Clearly, from reading this passage, there is a combination of the present and there is a combination of the future. Those that mourn will be comforted. Those who are whatever will receive whatever. Another way, as it were, Jesus brings into his teaching the concept of the kingdom of heaven, that it is both now and future. That whatever we go through now, we have a future hope that one day, one day things will be fine. One day things will be perfect. I believe the only way that most of us can get through the challenges and the heartache and the hellishness of life is that we have this idea that whatever's happening now, that one day we have a future hope, that we go through the valley of the shadow, but there is a future day coming when things will be different. It's like one of the, uh, the teachings of the New Testament, and especially Peter reminds us of the journey that we're on. You know, we we talked about straddling time, having our eye on the current, but our eye on the future. You know, I, I've, in, in, in my life, I've, had, I've sat down with two families that have had family members murdered. Two families that have had family members murdered. And one, the family knew Jesus, and the person that was shot, she knew Jesus. And the second family had no faith at all. 
and the incredible difference that there was between both families. There was heartache, there were tears, there was an incredible sadness, there was literally the wailing and indescribable, indescribable heartache. But the family who knew Jesus, despite the fact that their mother had died, they knew that they would one day have a future hope. And the only way that they could get through was both here and now and straddling and looking to the future. I sat with a family whose, whose dad had been shot. He went on behalf of his brother who was in debt and the, the, the person to whom he owed the debt, they shot him. And the family had no concept of Jesus. And I remember taking the funeral and it was one of the most saddest incidents in my life not only for myself, but especially for the family, because they had no future hope that this young man who had been taken out of their life would ever be with them again. Friends, today we live life with our eye on the current, but also on the future. And sometimes when we go through those darkest of days, it's the thing that will bring us through, that we know that we have a future hope. You know, once again, we, we see the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament writers reminding us of the fact that we are on a journey, that we are not simply passing through, that we're not simply here, and that's the main thing, but we are reminded that we have to balance our life, that we have to balance our dreams, that we have to balance everything that we have in the light of the fact that we will spend eternity with Jesus, that we are truly pilgrims. Friends, can I gently touch you tonight in the senses, if your life is, is consumed tonight in the here and now, let God challenge you through the Holy Spirit of a day that will come when you will spend eternity with him. And that what you do here on earth is all about being his disciples here on earth. You know, when you're young, and you can say it's easy for you, you all called you to say that, and you can say that, but you know the reality, time will go incredibly quickly, and when you get to this old codger's age, you'll realize, man, I wish I had done things then that had set my life to be defined by the fact that I am a son or a daughter of the living God. I would like to challenge us that we don't get so consumed with where we're at and what we do now. That doesn't mean that we be less than excellent and live our lives to the full, but it means that we have an eye on the present and an eye on the future. His kingdom now and his kingdom yet to come. This passage really leads us nicely into another aspect that is fundamental into understanding what is being said here. And it's to help us grasp, as I said at the beginning, the meaning of the word blessed. It is so, there's so much misunderstanding that flows around this word, and it has so often has been translated, I said, as, as blessed, a sense of a lightness, oh, be blessed, you know, when you say, oh, let bless him, you know, you know, sometimes we say, when we don't know what to say about people, we say, oh, bless them, or when we don't know what to pray for someone, we ask you, Lord, please bless them, Lord, just take this word that I don't really know what it means and do whatever you want to do in the life, because I can't think of anything else to say, Amen. That's a great word, but it can be shallow, and, uh, and it can be misleading. Jesus is teaching us here to be blessed in the original meaning and not to be happy. It would be a really interesting discussion one night to have 
around the topic that is Jesus really committed to our happiness here on earth? That would stir up some really good thoughts, wouldn't it? Or maybe some disagreement. See, the Beatitudes does not promise, or the Beatitudes do not promise laughter, pleasure, or earthly prosperity. But being blessed by God means they have in our life a deep-rooted hope, a deep-rooted joy, a deep-rooted peace and serenity that passes all understanding so that we know that we know that we know that we belong to God. You see, the Greek word used for blessed is the word called makarios. And it would have been instantly known to the audience to whom Jesus was talking about. They would have got it. They wouldn't have had to have my fumbling translation. It would have been incredibly familiar to them. The word makarios does not mean happy. It doesn't mean really if you are blessed, if you do something. But it already recognizes an existing state of happiness or contentment, and in this context comes from God. The word makarios has inherently within it a state that already exists in the person, that already is part of their life, and it comes from knowing God in this context. Blessed is talking about a person who has already the knowledge and joy of the Lord instilled in their life. The English word for happiness gives itself away because the root word for happiness is clearly hap, which means chance. So happiness in the English vernacular is very much based around, well, my circumstances, my life. Oh, I'm so lucky to be born in New Zealand. I'm so lucky to have a job, or I'm so happy. But there is an element of my circumstances around me. What is happening? And there is an element of, of a lottery. If I can use this, well, that's how my luck has fallen. So Jesus starts to teach and uses this Greek word, and in so doing, he is affirming a quality of spirituality that is already there. You won't find or get by doing any of these things any blessing if you do not have that inherent relationship with God first. This is not a manifesto for a for a political state. This is not a manifesto for the world. This is not a manifesto for anybody who does not know God. Jesus is clearly speaking to his followers, and he says, to my people who already have something inherently of God in their life, if you do these things, these will happen. These things will be the consequences. He is affirming a state that is already there. One incredible New Testament writer who, who's, whose expertise is in the culture of the day, who is in un, unpacking and understanding what it was really like in the first century, says these words. The special feature of the word makarios in the New Testament is that it refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive joy which accrues to man from his share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. Kenneth E. Barley, an incredible first century scholar, actually confirming again what makarios actually does mean. This passage is four square for people like you and I who call Jesus Savior and Lord. It says, if you, are having, if you are rooted in the faith, these are the characteristics that I'm looking for. And if you go through this, these things will happen if you are rooted and live as my people. In this sermon... 
Jesus clearly challenged and continues to challenge people today about our reason for living, about our perceived standard of living, that it was so radically different to what it was 2,000 years ago that I believe it's as radically as different today. Friend, our standard of living, our, our peace, our joy, our hope, our serenity will never be found, and you know this as well as I do, and I speak this to myself as much as to anybody else, is not in the income that we receive, is not in the disposable income that we have that really can make us happy, is not in the things that we can accrue, that we can add, that we can obtain for ourselves in this world. Our life is all about giving it to Jesus and allowing him to work these things in us and through us. It's not says, it doesn't say live like this and you will be a Christian. It says because you are a Christian, live like this. Seek after righteousness. Meek. Peacemakers. If you mourn, you will be comforted. Incredible, powerful words of Jesus. As we start to close, I just want to <coughs> read a quote from one of the most incredible gospel preachers of the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries from the, from the Midwest in the States, and he says, it seems certain that no other speech ever delivered has so influenced man as the Sermon on the Mount. Its content so, content so superior to any production proved the deity of its author. Its teaching is out of harmony with any school of religion or philosophy of that day, hence their, highest, hence their brightest of lights could not have produced it. It is not eclectic that it can that its contents are not a collection of the best thoughts of that or previous age. Its teaching is distinct, revolutionary, challenging every school of religious thought of the time, both, Jesus, uh, both Jewish and heathen. It is not a product of the times, but very clearly of deity. And I believe that it is still the most radical message that we have as Christians in the 21st century, and I'm so excited that over these next few weeks we're gonna take the time to unpack these different attributes. So as I bring this to a close, I, I wanna do it in a very good rabbinic style. Do you know, actually know that if we were really truly being Jewish here, um, I would be sitting and you would be standing? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> You're just thinking, keep standing, son, because soon you'll get tired and you'll sit down. I want to do in good rabbinic style by asking you a question. That's how rabbis taught their, their, their students. They would start off everything with a question. They would ask a question, and then they'd come back and answer, and there would be another question. And as you grew in, in the style, you, everything revolved around asking good questions. As a, as a rabbi engaged his students, how much did they understand? <clears throat> the question that I, I want to ask you tonight is a question that happened to me about 10 days ago. I thought about it after the service this morning. I was, I was sitting in Mementos and I, and I was having coffee with a couple. And uh, they asked me in, in the midst of all this conversation, and how are you doing? How are you doing? And what really challenged me was, it's because I knew in my heart that they really meant it. And I knew in my heart that it wasn't just a question that they meant, it was something that God was just pushing into me on, and he was asking me, as if through these people, so how are you doing, Chris? You know, sometimes asking people is like, it can be a really glib thing, how are you doing? Please don't tell me really how you're doing, because I want to move on. 
But I knew that in that moment of time, God was asking me through these people and through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, so Chris, how, how are you doing? And I just felt, as it were, there was a secondary part to that. Don't you hate it when God does that? You know, when God never asks me my opinion. He just wants the truth from me. And the second part of that question to how are you doing, I felt God say to me, he said, Chris, how much of your feeling good revolves around circumstances around you, on what sort of a day are you having, your feelings? How much of your doing good actually revolves around the external circumstances of your life rather than your relationship with me? And I got really challenged. I got really challenged. And I, I, I took a while to ponder it. I gave the people an answer and they were really pleased because I said I was doing really well and enjoying myself. But the conversation in my mind went on for about a, a week or so. And I knew that God was asking me that question so that I had to answer it first because I want to ask you the same question in re- good rabbinic style. How are you doing? How are you doing tonight? And I really mean it. I don't want your answers now, but maybe. How are you doing tonight? How much of your life depends around the fact that maybe if things are going okay with my partner or if things are going okay with my work or if things are going okay just with myself if I'm in a good space or maybe whatever you want to put in there. Friends, tonight the challenge, I believe, of the Word of God, the challenge of the Beatitudes is how are our lives doing in light of what He is doing in our life and what He calls us to be and who He calls us to be. People who have and a vested interest in the fact that we belong to the King of Kings and that we are working out our salvation irrespective of the circumstances that we find around ourselves, but in the light of the fact that we are His and that we are called to be a people that who are not just tinkered with, but are radically changed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, we're going to have a great five, six weeks. Looking forward to it, to the Beatitudes. And can I encourage you, go home, read it every day, come prepared. It'll take you like three and a half minutes to read the Beatitudes. And if you've got five minutes, read the Sermon on the Mount. It will be really good. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.